Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Um, can I trust the Bible? Because every week we looked at these various topics from um, heaven and hell and is Jesus the only way and last week homosexuality and a number of other topics looking at this book for the answers. And the assumption is this book speaks truth in each one of those areas. But the problem is if you don't trust this book, then you can kind of blow off everything I've said for the last month and a half. And I want to um, convince you today that this book has a lot to say to our lives, that ultimately all of us put ourselves under the authority of somebody or something. And that authority is either man, either yourself or other people, or it's under God. And I just want to urge you, there's no safer place than being under the authority and the favor of God. There's a pastor named Francis Chan who, uh, who speaks to this often, but he just has this little video clip that I want you to watch as we launch into this message today. So watch these screens. There are almost 7 billion people who are living on planet Earth right now. And I wish every one of them could read through the Bible before they ended their time on Earth. It's where we find truth. It's it's what God says about himself. Because everyone has an opinion about what is right and what is wrong, but ultimately, it doesn't matter what you think. We all think differently. Every culture has a thought of what is right and what is wrong, and there's a majority in every culture that that, that buys into a certain belief system. And yet what scripture says is, you know, the grass is gonna wither, the flower is gonna fade, but the word of God, the word of our God will stand forever. At the end, we're not gonna be judged by the majority. We're gonna be judged by God himself. We need to get people alone with this book, reading it for themselves, understanding it for themselves, because when this is all over, it's gonna be about God's word. And his authority is the only authority. Authority. That's the key word in all this. Because all of us listen to someone. And either we we listen to what God has to say and and, and say, I'm going to align myself with his authority. Or I become the authority and pick and choose what I want to follow, what's convenient. And we put ourselves over here with us as the ultimate authority. You need to know this. The belief in the Bible is, is required of us to follow Jesus. It's a requirement of us in our obedience to Jesus. Belief in the Bible is critical. If you don't believe the Bible, you're going to be really hindered in your spiritual journey. So today I'm going to, I want to um, hit some of the reasons why people struggle with this area, the arguments for uh, why we shouldn't trust the Bible, and then turn around and tell you why I believe we can trust the Bible. So here's some arguments against the Bible. Um, a lot of your families will have students that go off to college, and you'll take a class in college called the, um, the Bible as Literature. Teacher will say, you know, you, need to, you can read the Bible. It's good. It's got some good stuff in it. It's devotional, some good stories in it, but you don't want to take it literally. You don't want to make it an authority in your life. You need to read it like you would read any other piece of literature. And the reason for this is, number one, they, they believe that this is a book written by fallible men who are biased, who are faulty. There's a view that the, the Bible writers were actually men who had an idea of, of crafting this thought that Jesus, a, a nice man that lived in the first century, was, was 
was actually a mythological kind of figure. They made him sound better than he was. They, that, that he rose from the dead and did miracles and he came from heaven and all this, much like the Greek stories of the gods and things. They created this, this fanciful um, description of Jesus which doesn't mesh with reality because he's beyond human. He's, he's so different than everybody. That's not who Jesus really was. It's not what he wanted to be portrayed at. And these men made up this story. These men who maybe walked with Jesus or learned from him that Jesus may have been a good rabbi, um, they, they shared these stories for 10, 20, 30 years, and then after that period of time, wrote them down. But in the course of time, those stories got twisted and distorted and exaggerated, grew bigger. You know, the fish was this big. No, it was this big. And that's what happened with this story. It just grew over time. By the time they wrote it down, who knows what's true and what's not true? It, it, it has legends and, and personal interpretation and biases all weaved in it. We don't know what's true and what's not true. There's a group of scholars, supposedly, um, in the 80s and 90s called the Jesus Seminar. And, um, and you want to look at a group that lost their marbles? Here's what they did. They took four marbles, black, gray, pink, and red. And they read through the Gospels. And everything that Jesus said that they felt he really did say got a red marble. And things that they thought he might have said got a pink marble, and things he probably didn't say got gray, and things he definitely didn't say got a black marble. And so they went through all of the statements of the Gospels, and they found only 15 statements they really felt Jesus said. 15 in red got the red marble. That's why I said these guys lost their marbles, because they're, they're trying to determine, you know, we know better than Scripture, so surely Jesus wouldn't have said that. That sounds too harsh. It sounds too crude. But you see, when we put ourselves over Scripture, that's a dangerous place to be. What gives us that authority? These were common men. But what's so amazing about these men is God used them to, to write the Scriptures. Especially in the New Testament, you have people like fishermen, like Peter, and, and James and John, and all those who wrote books in the New Testament. Think, wow, how do, how, how do these guys remember what Jesus said? Because in those days, you didn't have pen and paper or recorders to record Jesus as he's going around preaching. So there was nobody taking notes, most likely, nobody recording it. How are they going to remember 10, 20, 30 years later? Well, one, the Bible says the Holy Spirit helped them to remember. But you need to also know that in that day, because most learning was oral, it wasn't through reading and writing, that they had very tuned-in ears. When a Jewish child was four and five years of age, they began to study the Old Testament, the first five books in particular, um, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are called the Torah. And they began to study. These children, by the elementary age, oftentimes had memorized the, all five books. Some of you say, I can't hardly memorize a verse. What a wimp. They memorized five books. I'm not talking chapters, five books of the Bible. And I know it's possible. I had a roommate in college who had memorized for this thing called Bible Bowl he was part of. He had memorized the whole book of Exodus. And so these kids grew up in a culture where they were used to memorizing large chunks of Scripture. And the young men, as they got older, um, if, if they were privileged to follow a rabbi, they were called a disciple, which was called a Talmudin. And they would follow the rabbi around. They would hang on every word. They, they, were, they were actually nicknamed as those who ate the dust of the rabbi because they followed so closely. They wanted to know what the rabbi knew. They wanted to do what the rabbi did. They wanted to become like the rabbi. And so their ears were tuned in. They began to memorize and quote the things that they were learning. So it's not surprising at all that these men who followed Jesus had committed to memory the things he had been teaching them. It, it's, not, it's not a far stretch to think. You and I couldn't do that because that's not the culture we grew up in. But that's the culture they grew up in, thinking, learning that way. 
Now, a little bit later, we'll talk about this thing called inspiration and how God helped guide the process to keep sin out of the Scriptures. But for now, you just need to know, um, yes, these were human beings, sinful human beings, but God used them to record his word. Secondly, people will say, well, you can't trust the Bible because it contradicts science and reason. You've got science and logic and rationality, and you've got faith and irrationality and religion, and the two don't mix. Well, that's a false dichotomy. That, that, that's a, you, don't, you don't have to choose one or the other. You don't have to check out your brains to be a Christian. There are parts of science that open our eyes to truths of Scripture. There are parts of science that we, are, we don't interpret well. You know, they, there are things of science that's changed over years. It was scientists that first said the earth was flat, not Christians. It was scientists. And scientists are the ones that corrected that and said, no, no, it's not flat, it's round. So science has changed interpretation over time. And, and religion has learned and interpreted Scripture sometimes differently over time too. As we learn better and we learn how to look at Scripture. But the two aren't, don't necessarily clash. The two actually harmonize very beautifully. Some of the leading scientists of history, Newton and Galileo and Copernicus and Boyle, all were Christians and they were scientists. They didn't find a conflict. They didn't, they didn't find that they had to check out their faith at the door in order to study. Actually, they discovered the more they studied um, science through the lens of Scripture, the more they could understand reality, that the two actually go together very well. People will say, well, I don't know how you can believe the Bible because everyone knows evolution. That's been proven. So you can't believe the Scriptures. I believe in evolution on a micro scale. Evolution within species happens all the time. Different varieties of dogs, different varieties of trees are all, all parts of evolving culture because of climate and, and diet and weather and all that affects, it affects those. But, but scientists have never proven that a cat came from a dog or from a horse. Or we've, never, we've never found the links between those two. And so we say, yes, I believe in evolution on a small scale uh, within kinds but not as a whole explanation for all of life. Science says, uh, it used to say, matter is eternal. All the planets, everything we see has been here forever. And then all of a sudden, the last century, no, you know what? Because things are ever expanding, you can go back in time to say everything came from a big explosion. It's like a point in time where everything just began. You go, wow, the Bible says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That he spoke everything into being. Hmm, that's interesting. It seems like those two are kind of fitting together pretty well. So science doesn't contradict Scripture. Nobel Prize winners, 78% of the Peace Prize winners um, prefer the Christian faith. 73% of those who won the prize in chemistry, 65% that won the prize in physics identified themselves with Christianity. So science does not necessarily contradict Christianity. How about, how about those who say, well, the Bible is culturally irrelevant and offensive. The ceremonial laws, the, the giving of blood, killing of animals, killing of people, support of slavery, subjugation of women, cause people to say, well, if that's what the Bible is like, I'm, I'm going to reject the whole thing. But before you reject something you don't understand well, you need to step back sometimes and go, you know what, that's a hard passage. I don't really get it. I need to understand the culture in which it was written. For example, you can look at the New Testament, which talks about slavery, but never speaks against slavery. It actually says, slaves obey your masters. And you go, how, how can they support slavery? Slavery is so dehumanizing. Well, slavery in our culture that we're used to and we've read about in America is different than biblical slavery. 
The, the slavery we're accustomed to was kidnapping African Americans, treating them like animals or worse, uh, beating them, raping them, killing them, treating them as, as, as beings without any dignity at all. Biblical slavery was different. People often dressed like normal people. People often got a wage for their work. Some of them weren't slaves forever. They, they were just for a period of time. It was much closer to our jobs today that you actually have a boss. And some of you say, well, I have a boss that's like a slave master. Well, okay, that, you understand. That's what it's like. You, you're, you're under authority. And that's what slaves were in biblical times. They were bond servants. And so when, when the Bible advocates, it's not speak, it's not... It's saying because it's, it was a different kind of slavery than what we're used to. We sometimes say, well, I don't like the Bible. It really puts women down. If you knew the culture in which it was written, you'd say it lifts women up because women had no voice in, in Jesus' day. Kids had no voice in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus is the one who comes along and says, you know, look at this little child. You need to be like it. Jesus is the one who says the value of the women. It's Scripture that says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. She's, she's not a possession. She's a prize. It's the Bible that teaches that, not culture. So the Bible actually elevates. If you step back and look, you'll find a, it's not uh, as offensive as you think. The part that we really find offensive is when it, when it uh, applies to me personally. I enjoy my sin, Lord. Bug out. If I want to have sex with that person or live with that person or take those drugs or, or be arrogant, that's my business, not yours. And then we get offended by that, but we probably ought to be offended because we're doing something wrong. So the Bible does speak very relevantly, sometimes too relevantly, into our lives. And ultimately, we either say, I'm going to pick and choose which verses I like, which means I'm the authority, or I'm going to yield authority and say, I'm going to come under you and what you say, and I will say yes to it. Even if it's hard, I will say yes to it. And I believe that's the position we ought to take. Because here's some reasons why we should trust in the Bible. First, because of its miraculous origin. We have in this book... Revelation from God. This book is not man's, man's best attempt to find God. It's not a, a, a collection of writings of people who went out searching for God. It's a collection of writings of God speaking through people to communicate to all of us across generations, across um, re- regions of the world and, and time span. He wants to speak to all of us through this. This is his revelation, his exposure of himself. And he does it through people. Through this process called inspiration. Inspiration. Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God breathed. Some of your Bibles, if you have an older Bible like King James, it'll say all scripture is inspired of God. The word inspire literally means God breathed. Theonustus is the word. God breathed. It means that God is the author of the scriptures. When you, when you put your hand before your mouth and you speak, you get breath. You, you can feel it. You can feel the warmth on your hand. Scripture is coming basically from the mouth of God to us. So it's inspired. Now, we think of people that are inspired that, that, that are like on an emotional moment. Like, I wrote this music or this poem because I was so inspired. That means like personal motivation. Or we may think of inspiration as how it affects you. Man, I read that and I got really inspired by that. But it's, not, it's neither of those definitions. Inspire, biblically, means God guided the process of making sure that what is written is what he wanted written. Now, how did he do that? Through fallible humans. He did it through this process of inspiration, which means he was guided by the Holy Spirit to write down what God wanted. 
Did God have to take their hand and, and make them write down what, what God wanted? No, I don't believe he did that at all. I think people wrote naturally. You think, oh, well, how could a sinful person write scripture? Well, think of this. If you're writing a card or a letter to someone, don't you think you can write one that doesn't have sin in it? Couldn't you write a letter to your child and say, you know, happy birthday, little darling, we love you, you're, you're so beautiful, uh, mommy and daddy hope you have a wonderful future? Man, beautiful, there's no sin in that, it's beautiful. God took people and in those moments where they were really in a good place spiritually, wrote scripture through their own personality, truth through personality. You, you see Peter writing a little different than John and John writing a little different than Paul and Paul writing a little differently than David because it's truth flowing through their personalities, their passions, their viewpoint, but, it's, but it was guided by the Holy Spirit. In Second Peter, the first chapter, it talks about this whole process of God guiding them. Above all, it says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in, human, in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they didn't just, I'm going to write some Scripture today. It was just in that moment when they were guided by the Holy Spirit, God allowed them to write words that were divine that were powerful, that speak to us even today. It says all Scripture is God-breathed. All New Testament, all Old Testament Scriptures came from God. Another reason you can trust it is because of its fulfilled prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies. You know, predicting the future is tough. There was a gal when I was a kid that was very well known. She had a column in the newspaper. Her name was Jean Dixon. And she was a psychic. Supposedly, she could predict the future. 1956, in an interview in Parade magazine, she predicted that in the 1960 election, there would be a Democrat-elected president and that he would either die or be assassinated in office. And sure enough, in 1960, JFK was elected president, and you all know the story, he was assassinated in office. What's interesting is that before the 1960 election, she switched, and she, she told people she now believed Richard Nixon would win the election. But that's not promoted very well. What people focus on is the 1956 prediction that she got right. And what people have, have um, they've coined a new phrase called the Gene Dixon effect, which means you can make enough predictions to get one right, and when you find the one that's right, you just emphasize that one and minimize the ones that got wrong so everyone thinks you're a genius. You know, last year, there was a, a gentleman who had tattooed on his arm that the Seattle Seahawks would win the 2014 Super Bowl. And so before the game, he was on news shows and Good Morning America and those places saying, you know, he did this back in August because he believed this was their year. And he got it right. You may say, like, he had a 1 in 26 chance, I mean, there are 32, 32 teams, he picked the right one. There's a guy this year, and I think he did it because of that guy. He, he got a tattoo that says the Dallas Cowboys are going to win in 2015. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> That's what I did. Okay, you can count me on this one. I predict this. 99.9% sure Dallas Cowboys will not win the Super Bowl in 2015. Okay? Count me on that one. And if I get it right, I'm a prophet. Okay? If you guess enough, or enough people guess it, someone's going to get it right eventually. But the problem is, those psychics get far more wrong than they ever get right. You look at the National Enquirer or the Globe or those little tabloids at the checkout line in December, look at it. Top 10 predictions for 2015. And I'll bet by the time you get to the end of 2015, um, you'll be lucky to find out any of them were right. 
But you know what's amazing? Of the sacred books of the major religions, most have no prophecies in them at all, except for, except for the Bible. The Bible has prophecies that actually prophesy political leaders by name, cities by name, times of history, and miraculous events. And there have been hundreds that have been fulfilled. Now, I don't have time to go through a bunch of them because there's a, there's a bunch of them in Scripture that are amazing. But one of those that I think is very profound is found in Psalm 22. David is writing in this psalm. And in, in verse 16, 17, and 18 of Psalm 22, here's what David writes. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. If you read that whole psalm, but especially that piece right there, you know that it's speaking of something that's coming in the future, of the crucifixion of Jesus. They divided his garments among them. People encircled him. They gloated over him. His hands and his feet were pierced as he was crucified. Now, you need to know this. This was written a thousand years before Christ. You also need to know this. Crucifixion wasn't invented as a means of torture or execution until 400 years after this was written. So David is describing a form of punishment and execution that hadn't even been invented yet because he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then you've got a guy like Jesus who really lays it on the line. I mean, this is pretty audacious. You can make a lot of predictions about things with other people, but he says this about himself. You tear this body down. You kill it. I will raise it in three days. And he did that. Jesus was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. They couldn't find his body in the tomb anymore. Why? He kept his promise. Now, that's a prophecy. You show me a man or a woman that says, you can kill me and lay me in the ground, but three days later, I'll rise up. I'll worship that person. That's amazing. Jesus did that very thing. So fulfilled prophecies. And there's, like I said, there's hundreds of them in Scripture of already fulfilled prophecies, and there's still prophecies yet to be fulfilled. There's historical confirmation. Historical confirmation means that history has validated the things of the Bible because for years people have said, well, I don't know if that's true because how, do you, how can you validate there really was an Adam and an Eve? There were no pictures taken. You know, nobody, nobody survives that lived then. How do we know for sure? How do we know those cities that were listed in the Bible really exist? In fact, for years, people said there's a group of people in the Old Testament called the Hittites. And they're mentioned in eight different chapters in the book of Genesis. There have been no trace they've ever existed. And so scholars said, see, it shows you. Bible's making up names, making up things to, to write good-sounding stories. But the truth is, those people didn't ever exist until archaeologists uncovered 40 cities of the Hittite people last century, including a capital city, and they had to retract their um, accusation. There was a guy named Sir William Ramsey who was an atheist, a wealthy man who decided to, to investigate the claims of Christianity and prove through archaeology that the writings, especially of Luke, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and there's a lot of things listed in there that were questionable. He, he set out to prove that they were wrong. But the more he uncovered stones and, and, and inscriptions and all these things, he began to find more and more, man, Luke, Luke was right about that. Luke, Luke got that thing right. And here's what he concluded over the years of his research, over 25 years of research. He said, I began with a mind unfavorable to it, but more recently I found myself brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, 
the antiquities and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And before he died, Sir William Ramsey became a Christian because of what archaeology showed him. That sometimes you look at the Bible and you go, I don't know if that's true. And you start digging behind and go, wow, it really was. And they keep finding stuff all the time. Pottery and inscriptions and cities that validate the teachings of Scripture. But here's probably the greatest reason why I think we should trust the Bible. Because Jesus did. Jesus quoted Scripture often. He referred to it. He never doubted Scripture. When he was in the, in the desert, Satan is tempting him. And three times Jesus counters his temptation with the quotation of Scripture. This is what was written, and he begins to quote. In fact, one of the quotations Jesus draws from the book of Deuteronomy is this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus is. He's fasting. He's having no food for 40 days. He says, I don't need food, but I need God's word. I'm not going to make it if I don't have truth from God. And you know, we hunger for food. Some of you are getting, I can hear your stomachs. You're hungry. And you're going to, I'm going to die if I don't have lunch. But seriously, you're going to die if you don't have truth. And not just die on earth. You'll die forever without truth. And we need to know the truth. And as Francis Chan said in that, you and I have a responsibility, not just to float through life, but to listen to God, that God has revealed himself through this book called the Bible, saying, I want you to know this truth. I want you to live according to it so you can live forever with me. Um, I've heard the Bible explain this with B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a, it's a good recommendation for knowing the Bible, knowing it, and living by it. Um, Jesus never doubted the cities of the Old Testament. He mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon. He never doubts the characters. He, he mentions in the beginning how Adam and Eve came together as husband and wife, how um, the prophets lived. He talks about Jonah. Never doubts that that event really happened. Jesus treats Scripture as true. He even says in the Sermon on the Mount that Scripture will be fulfilled. Every, every small letter, every little stroke of a pen will be fulfilled, meaning you've got to take it seriously. In fact, he says in the book of John, chapter 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. It will be fulfilled. It is God's plan. God has a plan for us. And it will be fulfilled. In Mark chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This world as you see it, one day will be dissolved, burned up fire, new, we'll have a new heaven and new earth, but his word will remain forever. So we, we ought to know it. He says it's important to know his word. And you know, I'm going to give you one more reason, and it's a personal one, because it's affected me. There's nothing like the scriptures. It, it shows me truth about myself. It's like an x-ray of my soul. Many of, you, many of you can identify the times you've studied the scriptures or read a passage and you said, man, that really, that's really penetrating my heart. It's, it's really poking me in some uncomfortable areas, but I know it's true. I know it's right. I know I needed to hear it. I didn't like to hear it, but I needed to hear it. See, the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4 is like this. It says that for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You cannot read the scriptures in a very sincere way without coming away saying, man, that is speaking to some deep issues. You can read the newspaper or magazine or internet post and 
You walk away from it. But, but I'll tell you, there's no book that's affected me like the scriptures where God grabs me and won't let me go and, and says, you know what? You need to get rid of pride and be humble or you need to quit being selfish. And it grabs me and I says, I've got to adjust my life to this authority. It's a beautiful book. It's a powerful book. It's, it's like um, an instruction manual. Like I just said, the basic instructions before leaving her. It's like the owner's manual. Like, here's how you live life. Here's how you should do it. Jesus was preaching to a group of people once, and he told them the story that people who hear these words of mine, Jesus says, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What Jesus is saying is there's teachings in here. And when you build your life on the teaching, you do what it says, it's like you're building that house on a firm foundation. If you hear what it says, if you walk out of church and don't do what it says, you're building it on sand. And how will you know the difference? Here's how you know the difference. When, when trouble comes, calamity comes, disaster comes, frustration, pain comes, you're going to find out what you're standing on. And if you're not standing on the rock, you're going to start to get really slippery and think, I don't believe God now. God's left me. God's abandoned me. I can't trust God anymore. That's how you're going to respond. Or if you're on the rock, you're going to say, God is still faithful. God is still true. God is still good. I'm not moving. And, and you won't know until the disaster comes. I just want to urge you, you don't want to wait till disaster shows your feet are on the beach. You, you want to be building it on the rock so when that comes, it's not going to hit you. It's amazing. I, I've, I was thinking about this recently. I know some people in my life who like perpetually go through crises. Like, oh man, this is, how come, how come I'm always the bad person? How come I'm always in this situation? And what I'm finding is people like that are not those who build their life on God's word. They're around it. They hear it. But it's not like they're conforming their life to it. And I'm just telling you, if you, if you come under that authority, it, it's, it's a beautiful place to be. Yes, it changes you. Yes, you have to adjust to it. But it's, it's a wonderful thing that God does for us to get us in that great place. I can tell you in my own life, my emotions, dealing with guilt, shame, worry, all uh, disappointment, hurt, rejection, I've been able to deal with it a lot better because of what the scriptures say. Finances, I've learned a lot more about how to handle money through the Bible than any other book. Marriage and parenting, the Bible's been great. Learned a lot of great things about those relationships because of what the Scripture says. How to deal with um, forgiveness issues. Oh, there's no better book than the Bible dealing with that. The Bible becomes like this lens through which I look at things. And I don't know if there's a, I don't know of a better lens out there. You look at the world and go, why is the world the way it is? Why is there so much pain and suffering in there? Why do good people do bad things? The Bible talks about that. The Bible says the heart's deceitful. Well, what, how, how do you interpret the world, why we're here, or the purpose of life and all that? The Bible addresses that. How, how do you deal with, with personal issues, mistakes I've made, and how, can, I, can I ever recover from them? The Bible speaks to that. How do I make my relationships work? The Bible speaks to that. What happens when I die? What happens to the body when I die? What happens to the soul when I die? The Bible speaks to that. Now, does the Bible answer every question you'll ever have? No. It doesn't tell you how to throw a football. It doesn't tell you how to change oil. There's a lot of things the Bible says nothing about. And it, it had to be this big 
I mean, a huge to answer every question. It doesn't answer every question, but here's what I believe the Bible does. It answers the big questions, the ones you really need to know to make life work. And therefore, we want to live under the authority of Scripture. In your bulletin is a web address. And I encourage you to go home on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer to pull up that web address because here's a challenge I have. Most of you, I would say most, I'm going to go out on a limb, most of you do not read the Bible on a regular basis. Most of you come to church and and the extent of your Bible education is whatever the sermon is that day. But I want you to go beyond it. The greatest growth I've experienced is is my own personal devotional walk with the Lord, reading the scriptures and listening. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, during the response time today, reach over. If you see a, your neighbor's Bible, just take it. It's okay. Okay? It's the only time I'd advocate stealing. They'll get over it. They'll say, they'll say thank you, God. I probably wasn't reading it as much as they want to read it, so it's probably better. They're hungry. Than, you know, if you need a Bible, go to that little cabinet in back. Open it up. I think there's a Bible still there. Take a Bible. Take it home. Read it. Or go to Goodwill. There's a ton of Bibles. For like a dollar or two, you can get a Goodwill. Take it and get to know that Bible. Get in the Word. And so for the next three months, here's what that reading plan says. If you take that link, it'll take you to a place that has a three-month reading plan. So for the next three months, you'll actually read through the whole New Testament before Christmas. And so let's do that together. If you don't have a plan already, let's do that together. Let's read the Scriptures. Read a chapter or two a day. But here's what you have to do. You have to begin your reading with this, a prayer that says, God, I want to hear your voice. I want to hear your voice speak to me through Scripture. I want it to be live and active in my life. Don't read the Bible like it's a textbook. Don't read it like the morning newspaper and just to get it out of the way. The goal is not to read the New Testament in three months. The goal is to hear fresh word from God. And I just know if you do that, I have seen myself over and over again hear from God when I've approached it in that way. And I promise you will too in ways that blow you away that will speak very relevantly into the issues you're dealing with right now in your life. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.